Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of The Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Only Witness. It's a historical fiction tracing a possible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Giuseppe Baldaccini, who is an expert in physics. He has used his background to understand certain aspects of the image-making process in the Shroud. Let me tell you a little bit first about Giuseppe Baldaccini. Uh, he lives in Rome, Italy, and he was born in 1941 and graduated in physics in 1965 in Rome. He carried out his research activities mainly at the ENEA Research Center of Frascati and the universities of Bel uh, Berkeley, and Salt Lake City in the US. He is author of several patents and numerous publications in solid state physics. Since retirement in 2009, he still works in science and cultivates medical, humanistic, historical, and archeological disciplines. In particular, he deals with the Shroud of Turin for his pleasure in dissemination of knowledge. He's also an award winner of the Sergio Paniza for Outstanding Contributions in Physics, SIF 1993. Giuseppe, thank you for being here and welcome. You're so, welcome. Uh, yes, absolutely. It's so good to have you. So tell us your backstory on how you got involved in the Shroud of Turin. Prior to 2005, I was not involved with the Holy Shroud. In particular, I knew the Shroud as did other Italians from reading about it in newspapers, magazines, and whatnot. Of course, I knew that it was a relic of the Catholic Church, very old, very controversial. I knew everything that had happened in the previous century with the regard to carbon-14 simply because I had read about it in the newspapers, but my knowledge practically ended up knowing the Shroud only in a very superficial way. When I was at home one evening, and I remembered that at the time I was reading something, I heard the television in the background talking specifically about the shroud. My attention was drawn to the fact that the person presenting the shroud at the time had said that one of the main features of the shroud was that the faint coloration of the body image was extremely superficial. Now, this immediately reminded me of the work that we had done in Frascati a decade or so earlier, in which by using particular and very powerful lasers on tissues, we had obtained surface modifications of these tissues. So this intrigued me to the point that when I went back to the lab, I went and looked for these previous works and found that the changes undergone by the tissues were extremely superficial. So from there, I came up with the idea of connecting these experimental tests that we had done in Frascati with, of course, the shroud and the shroud image. However, since I was completely ignorant of the shroud, I had to try in a short time to understand what I needed to do to proceed further. And so I contacted some experts at the time who were suggested to be a very dear priest friend of mine and friend of the family. And particular professor Giulio Fanti. When we spoke, we had several intense phone conversations over the course of a few months. I immediately realized one thing, 
that to know the shroud and to know it well is extremely difficult, practically impossible, and I had neither the time nor the will to know everything about the shroud. So I limited myself to studying in greater detail only the shroud images. This is one of the properties among the most important ones of the shroud. This is because it's what the naked eye can see over the entire length of the shroud. And so I realized that maybe we at the Frascati lab would be able to contribute to the study of the shroud images. At this point, I called one of my young collaborators who was precisely involved in the development and use of eczemer lasers, and I told him what my idea was. He was immediately very enthusiastic, and from there, a very intense collaboration began. This collaborator of mine was Dr. Di Lazzaro Palo, Di Lazzaro, whom we will all meet later in the sequel. And so together with Fanti and Di Lazzaro, we tried to set up a research group for the Shroud. This was the prologue of my entry into the Shroud field. Okay, yes, uh, very interesting. And it's always fascinating to hear the uh, how people got involved in the Shroud. So uh, let's start with then uh, one of the first questions. So what are the key characteristics of the image on the Shroud that would need to be reproduced to replicate the Shroud image? At first, the most important feature was precisely the depth of the faint coloration of the shroud image, which was what had attracted my curiosity in the first place. Then, of course, there is also the coloration. Why is coloring important? Because as historians of the shroud know, there was a famous fire in the mid-16th century in which part of the shroud was burned. The color near these burns is really dark, black almost. Whereas on the other hand, the color of the shroud image is not black, but it is a pale brown. I would say almost yellow, a yellow brown, what could be called sepia yellow. So it was clear that the origin had to be different. It could not be fire, it could not be heat. That was the most important thing. So we had to try to find a method that would color the fabric without going deep into the plant fibers of the flax. That was the point from the very beginning. So here comes the Frascati experience. We at Frascati had all the lasers available starting from infrared all the way to ultraviolet. So we were aware that as the wavelength of laser light gets shorter and shorter, that is going from infrared down to ultraviolet, the penetration into materials becomes less and less. So it was an a priori choice to start with eczemer lasers right away. That was the initial idea which was then maintained and strengthened. Of course, as we will see below, this idea triggered other properties that we did not know about at the time, but all of which eventually led to solving many problems involving the shroud image. Yeah, thank you. Very interesting. So, uh, and that uh, leads us to the work that you did with uh, Dr. Giulio Fanti. So tell us about what you did in 2005 with, uh, with uh, Dr. Giulio Fanti. 
First, we had to be very sure that we were designing an experiment that was meaningful, not only from a physical point of view, but also from the point of view of the specimen we were working on. The first big search was for fabrics to irradiate because not all fabrics are the same. We had to use a linen that was as close as possible to the shroud linen. We know that modern linens, unfortunately, are treated with special chemical processes, so unfortunately, the surface of modern linens would not be suitable for study. So we had to take a linen that had been produced in a very similar way to what was done 2,000 years ago. I was lucky here because in my family, which is originally from Umbria, there was a custom for the women of the family who were going to be brides to make the linen cloth themselves without using chemical processes. But starting from the original material, that is, the flax seeds, to the final cloth, the only thing they used was a bath and ash to soften the fabric and nothing else. So I was able to find these linens in my family that were at least 60 years old and even older, in my mother's trousseau and in the trousseau of some of my Umbrian cousins, and with these clothes, we started to run the experiments. Then Professor Fonti helped us in this research, and he managed to get a modern industry to produce a linen cloth, but made by ancient methods. These were the most complicated things. Otherwise, we already had the laboratories in place in the sense that we had to make minor modifications, but we had both the laser sources, the detectors, and all the equipment that allowed us to perform the experiments in Frascati. Yeah, very interesting. So, uh, and so glad you were able to uh, work with uh, Giulio Fonti. So one of the things that you did was to use an eczemer laser. So how does an eczemer laser differ from other lasers? Uh, eczemer laser, uh, uh, as everybody working in physics and in optoelectronics knows, but this doesn't mean all the people hearing me now, that uh, building a, 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 a laser in the ultra in the violet region of the electromagnetic spectrum is very difficult. What was very difficult today is easier, but because we... As everyone working in physics and optoelectronics knows, building a laser in the ultraviolet range of the electromagnetic spectrum used to be very difficult. Today it is easier because science and engineering have progressed. But at the time, it was difficult. It was so difficult that it was still not possible to build a laser in the ultraviolet range that would work continuously. It was not yet possible to prepare matter with enough energy to emit in the ultraviolet region. This is a matter of energy. The higher the energy of the photons emitted by the laser, the more difficult it is to achieve laser emission. This is so in general. So the only way to produce these lasers was by using excimers. Excimers are synthetic molecules that do not exist in nature, but only exist for a very short time when there is an electrical discharge. 
Now, because these gases are also extremely rare in the atmosphere, it is a very rare phenomenon in the atmosphere and can be created practically only in laboratories. These molecules live for a very short time, less than a few milliseconds, but in that small period, they can be used to amplify laser radiation. So these lasers have these properties. First, they emit in the ultraviolet, that is below 400 nanometers. For example, our eyes see up to 400 nanometers as blue. Below the range, our eyes don't perceive the light. And as everybody knows, we can only see 400 to 700 nanometers. Below 400 nanometers, which is what is called ultraviolet, we are no longer able to see the light emitted. It is a very energetic light, and it is emitted in pulses, that is, it is emitted for periods of time ranging from a millisecond to a nanosecond, that is, from a thousandth of a second to a billionth of a second. Because this energy is emitted in very small bursts, the power is enormous. The power can, at the moment the laser strikes matter, reach billions of watts. Everybody knows how big this energy is because everybody knows that a normal tungsten bulb, let's say a good bulb, is 100 watts. Here we are a million times more than that. To understand how much power this is, the power of these lasers is so high that when you use these lasers in the lab, nobody can be in the vicinity because they are extremely dangerous. If they hit the human eye, they will cause blindness. But even if they hit a hand or skin, they burn, they pierce. That is, they do a lot of damage. So these lasers, especially the ones we had at Frascati, which were among the largest in Europe and in the world at the time, were such that all the operators were in a room next door. We could only see what was going on through the cameras. No one could be in the room where the lasers operated. They were truly monsters. And the reason we used eczema lasers, as I mentioned before, was because these lasers ensured that the penetration into the cloth would be very small. Yeah, it's a very amazing when you talked about uh, the uh, amount of energy and then uh, some of the other things related to that. It's, uh, it's pretty fascinating. Um, I'm going to move to the, uh, so, so how then did the eczema lasers almost replicate the image that's on the shroud? Uh, okay, this is uh, the interesting part of the whole story. Because uh, when we started, uh, we worked for almost six months without obtaining any good result. In practice, what happened? when we put the fabric no, in front of the laser, or we burned completely the, the, the system, or the system just evaporated, disappeared, no? <laughs> or there was nothing else. So we, uh, uh, sorry that I used the English. So 
When we started, for the first six months, we didn't get the results we wanted right away because the linen fabrics either evaporated, burned, or in some cases, nothing happened at all. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell what we did, but in short, we were a little disappointed because we said, why are we making no progress? Then finally, the results started to come. And when we figured out what we had to do and we came across the right path, then it took a few years to figure out what the main features needed to be. It turned out to be a lot more than what we originally thought we could do. However, I'd like to say, I don't know if you can see this. In April 2008, we were able to publish our first results, which we now know were not exactly what we wanted. However, they were extremely important. These were the basis from which we were able to understand how we could move forward. And the interesting thing is that these results were published in Applied Optics, as you can see here, with the front cover and what is about a flex fibril irradiated by our lasers. It was published during the Easter Holy Week of 2008. So I considered this a great achievement, which we later continued to refine. And I will tell you below what happened in practice and what we achieved. In practice, when one considers a laser, it is like opening a new world. The laser is not a one-size-fits-all tool that has only one parameter. It is not like a knife which cuts, for example, you try to make the blade thinner, but there is little more you can do. On the other hand, the laser has a whole set of characteristics that make it unique. I am not going to stand here now and give a lecture on lasers because that is not our purpose today. I will just say what we are interested in. First of all, the wavelength. The wavelength is most important because the wavelength of the laser also gives the energy of the photon. And as almost everybody knows by now, light energy resides in photons, which are particles, elementary particles, that contain energy. Excimer lasers range from 400 nanometers down to 100 to 150 nanometers, so they can span a wide range. This means that there are many wavelengths, and each of these wavelengths from the physical point of view is different from the other. Why are they different? Because when it comes to light interacting with matter, what's important is the energy of the photon and the energy states of the matter. Without going into detail, the energy states of the linen that are of interest to us are the chemical bonds that are in the molecules of the fabric. These molecules contain carbon-carbon bonds, carbon-hydrogen bonds, and so on. Each of these bonds has its own energy. Well, if you go and look at it, in this range, from 400 to 100 nanometers, there are all these organic bonds. What does this mean? It is as if we strike a bell. The bell rings at its own frequency. And so if we hit one of these bonds with a photon, this bond starts vibrating only if the two frequencies are similar. If they are far apart, nothing that we want happens. Other things happen, but we aren't interested in these. So the importance of wavelength is critical because it is like having the right key for the right lock.
With another laser of in the visible range, it would not have been possible. This must be clear that wavelength is the topmost factor. Then there is another very important factor, which is the pulse duration, that is, how long the laser emission lasts. Why is this important? Because the pulse duration also corresponds to the duration of the interaction between the light and the material. If this interaction is too long, regardless of the wavelength, the effect will be a thermal effect. That is, if the power is too large, the end result is that you burn the fabric. But that is not what we want. We do not want to burn the tissue. Everyone remembers when we were young, we read about the adventures of the first laser weapons that were being made in the 1930s by the famous Flash Gordon. He used his laser gun to fire a beam and burn everything it touched. It's true, if a powerful laser lasts a long time, it burns everything it encounters, there's nothing you can do. But we didn't want that. We didn't want to burn, but we just wanted to make sure those chemical bonds that I mentioned earlier resonate to understand what could happen at the physical and chemical level of the molecule. This was the key point. The third point is potency. Potency is important because it gives us the exact measure of the amount of energy that we are able to put into that chemical bond. If we put a great deal of energy into that chemical bond, we excite the chemical bond very much. And by exciting it, we open a whole series of chemical and physical reactions, which are the basis of all modern chemistry. I don't want to go into this in detail, but you know that many chemical reactions nowadays are facilitated or initiated by light. Just think, for example, of the photoelectric effect. I have a photoelectric system in my house that, when the sun is shining, gives me about 2 to 3 kilowatts. Right now, we are at the end of the day, and it only gives me about 100 watts. But what is this? It is nothing but light hitting a particular material and producing electrical energy. This example provides some understanding as to what the effect is of the interaction between light and matter. Now here I have partly answered the question you were asking and what these characteristics are. Now I can detail it much more. What we have discovered at the end of the whole series of experiments that lasted over five years is that it is possible to obtain linen cloth surfaces similar to those of the shroud, only if the wavelength of radiation is less than 200 nanometers. The famous yellow color that I mentioned before is actually not yellow. It is a sepia yellow, a very light yellow which can only be obtained if the wavelength is below 200 nanometers. If the wavelength is above that, the colors turn brown. So here is the importance of the wavelength in the specific case. But coloring only takes place if the pulse duration is less than 100 billionths of a second. That is, it has to be a flash of light. If it's longer than that, it doesn't work. It burns through. 
So this is another very important point that when we started, we did not know. And this was one of the major findings. Third and the last point, which will also prove to be important, is power. Only within a small range of power, but at the level of billions of watts, can you get coloration. If the power is lower, you get nothing, or at least nothing can be seen by the naked eye. If the power is too high, you either destroy the tissue or burn it. This explains why during the first experiments we didn't have any meaningful results. We had to operate in this three-dimensional space. Basically, everything happens in a small area of this huge three-dimensional space. And I have to say that luck probably helped us too, because guessing where to hit in an immense space was very challenging. We were maybe even good, but luck definitely helped us. To give a practical example that everyone understands, if one has an effect that depends on only one parameter, that's fine. The results can be written on a page where one makes a table, a variable is written down, the parameter for this variable is provided, and then the results are given. One page would be enough. If there are two parameters, however, it takes a book. Why? Because for every value of one parameter, I have to put all the values of the other parameter, and that's one page. But because there are so many values of that parameter, I will have so many pages, say 100. So I have a book of 100 pages. But if I put a third parameter, then one book is no longer enough. It takes a library. So this experience is like moving around looking for a book in a big library without having an index. Yeah, um, well, th and thank you uh, so much for that. Uh, it's very, very fascinating. So uh, you've also done some research on how the shroud and also the sedarium were transported from, uh, from uh, Jerusalem uh, up to Turin, uh, and then also the sudarium from Jerusalem to uh, Oviedo. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, how the shroud and the sudarium may have traveled from Jerusalem through Asia Minor and, uh, and Antioch? Uh, okay, this is another question. <laughs> it's a totally <laughs> different dimension. This is <laughs> I have always dabbled in historical studies as well as scientific studies. Ever since I was young in high school, I have always liked history. And in particular of history, I liked the study of historical flows. That is, why history moves in a certain direction. What are the forces? What are the human contributions? The contributions of nature that lead up to certain outcomes, outcomes that are very often unexpected. For those who know the history of the shroud, even minimally, this is a truly exceptional field. But why? Because so much and so little is known about this object that I, along with many others, consider one of the most important historical objects of humanity. 
in that sense, for different reasons, but all related to human history, man is an irrational being, much more than rational. And so, history has also been affected by this unreasonableness of man through history. As everybody knows, we know everything about the Shroud of Turin from 1350, more or less. We know a lot, but in a very confused way about what happened before that. It is difficult to put these two halves of history together. However, if one looks at history from a distance and sees what happened during that time period, manages to make a general reconstruction that, if nothing else, is logical. And logic, you know, in history is very important. For history, generally, chance is very important for individual episodes. Chance. But it is not important for big trends. The big trends, the big flows are due to very solid reasons that historians know very well. I particularly focused on the earliest periods, the ones that are less well known, and applied my critical sense of history and my personal knowledge to that period to try to see if we could clarify anything in particular. The question I asked myself was, why is it that after what the Gospels write about the Shroud and the Sudarium that nothing more is said for so many centuries? There are many things that happened, but it is often difficult to reconnect these later events to these two objects that are known to exist because they are written in the Gospels. And so I here applied my personal experience, which made me realize that the historical people of 2,000 years ago are not essentially different from us today. If we behave in a certain way today, it is very likely that 2,000 years ago they also behaved in the same way. And so my hypothesis is that both the burial shroud and the sudarium were collected by the women who followed Jesus Christ and kept in secret by them in the early days because the men who were Jews would never have touched them as they were impure objects for their religion. This is my basic hypothesis. This allowed me to follow the movements of the women and especially Mary, the mother of Jesus. So my hypothesis led me to think that the shroud followed Mary and John to whom Jesus entrusted her on the cross. And so it went with Mary to Ephesus where there is a very rich Marian tradition, among other things. After that, it gets very complicated. There isn't time now to go into all the details, but it is my opinion that when Christianity was accepted as a state religion by the Roman Empire, the Emperor Constantine, the Shroud, and the Sudarium went back to Jerusalem. That is my basic idea. And they stayed there for many centuries until the Persians came in 614 AD. And that's when a whole movement began that revolved around Constantinople. Until in 1204 AD, the shroud disappeared from Constantinople. The sudarium, on the other hand, followed its own separate path since the time of the Persians 
probably because they wanted to save these relics and sending them together would not have been prudent. They separated them to give them a better chance of survival. This story is so important that in the 614th sack of Jerusalem by the Persians, the Persians were able to take the true cross, the cross that Constantinople's mother, Empress Elena, had taken three centuries earlier in Jerusalem. Then one asks, why did they not also save the cross, but saved only the burial shroud and the sudarium? One reason could be that the real cross was there, yes, in Jerusalem, the original one, but two pieces of the cross were also in Rome and one in Constantinople. So they focused on saving the other relics instead because they were unique and only in Jerusalem. In any case, this is why, when the Romans finally won and destroyed the Persian Empire, about 10 years later, they were able to recover the real cross which they brought back to Jerusalem. But there is no mention of either a burial shroud or a sudarium, simply because they were not there. They were already safe elsewhere. One was in Constantinople and the other was in Spain. This is the basis on which I built the historical movement of the cloths and the descriptions surrounding it. Someone might ask, but why did the relics sometimes travel on land and other times travel on ships at sea? Again, there is a very particular reason because for those who know the history of ancient Rome, the Romans did not like the sea. For a Roman to take a ship, it was only when there was no land alternative. This has always been the case throughout the history of Rome. So it is very often the choice to move these relics by land or by sea was an obligatory choice because there weren't any others. For example, when the Persians came to Jerusalem because the Persians were coming from the north, the only way out was the south. And in fact, where did they, the Romans, take these relics? To Alexandria in Egypt. Because clearly they took the land route because it was the easiest. But when, two years later, the Persians eventually conquered Alexandria, the situation was different. The relics were separated. One went by land along the coast of North Africa. The other one instead, in my opinion, went to Constantinople by sea, primarily because it was the most direct route and probably at the time there were no other options available. Otherwise, it may have been the case that both of them would have gone together along the coast of North Africa. This is an example of how certain historical knowledge in this case about the Roman Empire can help to understand why one choice was made and not the other. With that in mind, you can then dive deeper because especially the burial shroud made many trips according to my hypothesis. That is, it did not remain simply in Jerusalem. From Jerusalem, it was taken, in my opinion, to Edessa. But this is a working hypothesis. I know that there are other historical reconstructions, and if there are historical documents that prove otherwise, as an amateur historian, I would be ready to accept them without any problem. Yeah, very uh, interesting. And um, unfortunately, I, I think I have to uh, cut it there. <laughs>
um, because we're definitely running out of time. Uh, but uh, before we close, is there anything else that you'd like to mention before we close? Yes, I, I think I, I, I would like to mention uh, one of the consequences of our experiment in Pascal. I want to mention one of the consequences of my experiments in Frascati because basically what did our experiments discover? They discovered that we were able to color only a few square centimeters of linen. We were not able to reproduce the whole shroud image. Ours was a study of the surface of the linen. It didn't have any other purpose. But we made an arithmetic count that to color the whole shroud image, you would need an eczema laser that does not exist. That is, no laboratory in the world can have a laser capable of creating that image because the power required is so high that it would not be possible. This is probably not even at the NIF, the National Ignition Facility in Livermore, United States. The fact is that in Livermore, they are trying to reproduce nuclear fusion with about a hundred lasers. They would not even be able to create what would be needed. That is the first point I want to make. Secondly, our experiments say that that kind of coloration with similar characteristics to those of the shroud can be achieved only with an extremely powerful flashlight. And that, of course, for anyone who knows the subject matter opens up an enormous number of areas for new study. This includes hypotheses that perhaps go beyond science itself. But on this, I leave it to the imagination of individuals to develop further work. Anyway, there was this huge explosion, a huge explosion in power, but not in energy. The energy would not have been enough to destroy the tomb, but it would have been enough to do what we probably still see on the Shroud of Turin today. Well, uh, Giuseppe, uh, thank you uh, so much. Um, I look forward to uh, hearing the translation <laughs> and understanding more about uh, what you said. And uh, But I, I think even understanding some of the words, uh, and especially towards the end when you're talking about the enormous energy that was in the that had to have taken place or of, of some kind. But in any case, I want to thank you so much. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, speaking with you again. I would love to learn more about what you, some of the other areas that you're studying right now and, uh, and looking forward to uh, uh, being able to, to do that. So uh, in any case, uh, please stay tuned for many other videos in this series on the backstory of the Shroud of Turin. And please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. And if you like this one, please rate it with five stars. Giuseppe, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for, for participating. You're welcome. It has been a pleasure for me. <laughs> <It was> Wonderful. <laughs> thank you. I really appreciate it. <laughs> okay.